and welcome. Um, as uh, Alan said earlier on, Tim Stilwell, our vicar, is on holiday at the moment. I seem to be very loud. Am I very loud? Um, and a few of us have stepped in uh, these few weeks to lead a, a series of talks on Joseph, looking at Joseph and his life and work as it's set out in the book of Genesis right at the start of the Bible. Um, this is number three of a series of four. And I thought it might be helpful just to review where we've got to so far, because uh, this is the time of year, people on holiday, maybe, maybe you've missed one, maybe both of the last, uh, last two in the series of Joseph. So let's just have a bit of audience participation, please. Who was Joseph's father? Sadly, no chocolates this week. But yes, Jacob. <laughs> um, if you're struggling for the answers but are, are quick on the draw... Uh, you could perhaps be looking round about page sort of 37 onwards in your, in your Bibles. How many sons did Jacob have? Twelve. Well done. Who knows how many daughters Jacob had? <laughs> I think I heard one from the back over there, and that was the right answer. Now, who knows who Jacob's favorite son was? Joseph, well done. Very good. And who can remember what Jacob gave Joseph, his favorite son? You're very good. And in fact, you've got almost a multicolored coat on this morning. Do you want to come up and preach? <laughs> Excellent. Well, um... Joseph, you might remember from when we looked at this with Piers back a couple of weeks ago, in chapters 29 and 30, and then we looked at uh, uh, chapter 37 as well with Piers. A um, bit of a muddled family history in Jacob's household, because there were four wives, and the children were all from, from different wives, and there was, so there was a bit of, sort of uh, internal family tension, I think it's fair to say. And this helped to fuel some of the irritation that Joseph's brothers felt towards Joseph. Um, you might remember uh, Joseph telling his father on his brothers when his, when, when his brothers had done something wrong. The, the multicolored coat can't have helped. And uh, who can remember the, the, the dreams um, recorded in uh, chapter 37? Um, Joseph had a couple of dreams. For example, he dreamt that uh, he was a, a sheaf of corn, that his brothers were sheaves of corn, and that they all bowed down and worshipped his sheaf. You can imagine that this didn't make him particularly popular. Who can remember what happened to Joseph? How did he get his comeuppance? What did his brothers do to him? Sold him into slavery, that's right. So, off he went. Who knows where he was taken to? Well done! <laughs> Very good. And then we sort of pick up the story in uh, chapter 39. And that was the chapter that we were looking at with Colin last Sunday. Who can remember who Joseph went to work with in Egypt? Who he went to work for? Potiphar, that's right, Hugh. Thank you. And how did Joseph get on with Potiphar? Was he, was he just an ordinary slave? or remember? He was, that's right, he was, um, he was sort of promoted to leader of Potiphar's household. I'm just going to stick something under here to stop it moving around. And um, how did Potiphar's household do under Joseph? 
do very well. And can you remember why? Because the Lord was with him, that's right. And we see that uh, in, in, throughout chapter 39, that the Lord was with Joseph. But then things all went wrong. Potiphar's wife, a bit of a sort of a Joan Collins character, I think, um, decided she quite liked the look of our Joseph. And uh, um, he, he tried to, 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 to keep well clear. Uh, but in the end, um, she grabbed hold of Joseph. Uh, he ran away, leaving his cloak behind. Mrs. Potiphar reports all this to Potiphar. Um, reports, well, gives rather a false account, really. Tells Potiphar that Joseph had been trying to have his wicked way with her. Potiphar, furious, and what happens to Joseph? Thrown into prison. Well done. And in prison, again, we see that, sort of, despite, despite the odds, really, uh, Joseph does well. And we see that uh, the Lord was with him, showed him kindness, and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warder. The prison warder left Joseph really to get on with it. And, um, you know, Joseph was, was pretty much in charge in the prison, really. Uh, but uh, still in prison. Well, that was where we'd got to last week, and, and Colin made the point that during the good times, uh, Joseph was prosperous because of God, and gave glory to God, gave thanks to God. And in the bad times, Joseph relied on God, and that we should do the same. Now, Joseph was in prison for about 10 years in total. We're going to pick up in a minute uh, chapter 41, and Ros will be reading that to us. But in between, we've got chapter 40, and chapter 40 records Joseph's encounter with a couple of other prisoners who were in prison with him. They were uh, Joseph's baker, sorry, Pharaoh's baker and Pharaoh's wine waiter. And both of these guys had been thrown into prison by Pharaoh. Um, they both had some odd dreams that they didn't understand, and God enabled Joseph to interpret their dreams. And within three days, those interpretations had come true. And so we really sort of pick up the story today in chapter 41 um, with Joseph still languishing in prison. And although we know that God was with him, things were looking rather bleak. But then the light at the end of the tunnel is that Pharaoh himself has some odd dreams. And he doesn't know what they mean. His usual advisors can't interpret. Fortunately, the wine waiter from, from back in, in, in prison remembers... The wine waiter, who uh, Joseph had met in prison, remembers Joseph and remembers Joseph's knack for interpreting dreams. And uh, the wine waiter recommends Joseph to Pharaoh. And that's really where we pick up the story in uh, Genesis chapter 41. Verse 14. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, In my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I'd never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first. But even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. 
In my dream, I saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered, because the famine that follows it will be so severe The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are, coming and, that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, Well, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace. All of my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh places Joseph in charge of making sure that Egypt is fully prepared for the famine. Joseph is made second in command, if you like, only to Pharaoh, and so he becomes a very important man throughout the whole of Egypt. And he puts into place, over these, next coming, over these coming verses, the plan to store up food during the seven sort of bumper years, these seven years of great crops, so that there's enough set aside for the famine. Ross is going to pick up the story again in verse 53. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. 
because the famine was severe everywhere. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ros. So let's just pray now as we come to look at these verses in some more detail. Uh, Let's pray that God will help us to understand his word this morning. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word in a language that we can understand, Lord. We thank you that you long for us to understand it. And we thank you that you have given us your spirit to open our eyes and to soften our hearts so that we will see what you have to say to us and that we will change our lives accordingly, Lord. Lord, we pray that you will open our eyes this morning. Amen. So that's, the, that's the, the story of Joseph so far, if you like. Today we're going to look at three ways in which Joseph was Christ-like. You might have seen from the, from the, uh, the service sheet uh, the title of this morning's talk, The Christ-like Spirit of Joseph. I'm going to suggest that Joseph is an Old Testament model of what was to come in Christ, a sort of uh, prototype or a foreshadowing, if you like, a picture of the Christ to come. 2,000 years before the real thing. Let me try and explain to you what I mean. When I, well, as, as many of you know, I have rather a liking for fast cars. Um, the car of my dreams for about 20 years now has been an AC Cobra. Lots of cheap replicas around, but to buy the real thing from about 1965, you'd need about a quarter of a million pounds. There's no way I'll ever own one of these cars. But I have seen them racing at Silverstone, and I've sat in one. They look beautiful, and they sound amazing. Now, when I was young, I had a model of one of these. It was about this big, and it was blue. The doors opened, and the bonnet opened, and the boot opened, and there was a little model of the engine under the bonnet. When you moved the steering wheel, the front wheels moved. It was great. It helped me to sort of dream of the real thing. But I always knew it wasn't really the real thing, because I'd seen the real thing. I'd even sat in it. It was on the back of a trailer at the time, but... What I had was just a model, a picture, if you like, of the, of the real thing. In a similar way, Joseph is a model of Christ, an imitation of what was to come, a picture of the real thing. And I'm going to suggest this morning that there's three main ways in which Joseph is Christ-like in, uh, in this story. First, we'll look at the detail of the character of Joseph, looking at his, his attitude and his, his, his characteristics. Then we'll sort of pan out a bit and look at what God achieved through Joseph, his sort of contribution to humanity, if you like. And then we'll take a further step out and have a look at Joseph in the, in the sort of the full Bible context to see how he's Christ-like in that regard. So first, the Christ-like character of Joseph. We saw last week uh, with Colin that uh, Joseph was a godly man. He relied on God. He succeeded because of God. You get a real feel for the story in chapter 41 that um, Joseph was kind of a model of the the servant king. He was second second in command only to Pharaoh, but he was in that position serving God and serving others, serving the people of Egypt. It doesn't seem as if he was trying to get any glory for himself either. all, All the time he's giving glory to God and thanking God that God's put him in this position. We skipped over verses uh, 50 to 52 in chapter 41, but just take a quick look. Verses 50 to 52 record um, Joseph naming his two sons, and he gives them names that directly give glory to God. They recognize that um, God has helped him to sort of move on from the injustices that his family have done to him, 
And secondly, he names his second son, Ephraim, because God has made him fruitful in the land of his suffering. Joseph recognizes that it's all due to God, so he's not claiming any glory for himself. He's Christ-like in that respect. He's a servant king. He has resisted temptation. We saw that in the story of Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife trying to seduce him. Joseph managing to, uh, to, to fend off her unwanted advances. We'll see later in the story that uh, Joseph exercises real forgiveness. Real forgiveness towards those who'd wronged him, particularly his brothers. In a few chapters' time, the brothers come to visit Joseph because they, they are hungry. They, they have no food, food back in Canaan. They come to Joseph. Joseph recognizes who they are, but perhaps because of his sort of outfit, they don't recognize him. He plays a bit of a game with them to start with, but then he reveals himself to them. And he makes it clear to them that he doesn't bear them any grudge, that he forgives them for what they've done to him. And we've seen throughout that he honors God. I mean, look at uh, chapter 41, verse 16. This is uh, Joseph having been dragged up before Pharaoh to interpret the dream. And Pharaoh says, you know, I hear you're the man to interpret this. Joseph, rather bravely perhaps, says, I can't do it. Joseph says, God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And we see that again in verse 25. And then in verse 39, Pharaoh recognizes that Joseph is a godly man, empowered by God, that God has made all these things known to him. So Joseph was Christ-like in many of his characteristics and attitudes. Over the coming centuries, the Israelites, hearing the stories of Joseph from Moses and the other religious leaders, would have seen Joseph as an example of godly living. And I think there's much for us to learn from Joseph as he models Christ-like behavior. Unlike those early Israelites, we have an example that's even better than Joseph. We have Christ himself and the gospel accounts of his life. True, perfect, godly living. And perhaps one of the challenges that Joseph poses for us is whether we really live lives that seek to honor God, to give glory to God, to play our part in God's plan and God's purposes. Do we allow God to be active in us and through us? And do we pray that God will make us more like him? The great news, of course, is that we don't have to become more Christ-like on our own. The Bible tells us that God has given us his word and his spirit so that we will be shaped into models of Christ. Alan mentioned this earlier, and Colin mentioned it in the prayers, from the the verse from uh, Philippians. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This process of being shaped is an ongoing process. And it's not just down to us to to happen. God does that work in us. We all fall short, but we should all be longing for God to make us into the people that he designed and intended us to be. The prophets promise that we will reach perfection, but not in this life. The pictures and visions at the end of Revelation, they give us a taste of what heaven will be like when we live with God and he lives with us when we have been perfected so that we are holy enough to be in God's presence. No more sin, no more pain, the old order passing away and everything made new. But I think perhaps the challenge from Joseph is that in these sort of in-between times, while we're waiting for Christ to come again, 
that we should be training for heaven. We should be longing for God to make us more Christ-like. So I suggest that's the first way that Joseph was a model of Christ, in his character and his attitude. And that sets a model for us as well. Taking a step back, the second way in which I suggest that uh, Joseph was a model for Christ is in his sort of lifetime contribution, if you like. Stepping back to look at his life in the round, what did he achieve? Well, I don't know whether you ever look at the obituaries in the newspapers. Perhaps not the most light-hearted of reading, but often quite inspiring nevertheless. If you've ever read them, you'll notice that uh, usually you have the, uh, the person's name and then a strap line underneath that kind of sums up their main contribution or their biggest achievement. And so here from Wednesday's paper, we have Brooke Astor. And heard the strap line there, philanthropist who gave more than 200 million to New York projects and institutions. And then from yesterday's newspaper, uh, the obituary of Lord Deeds, cabinet minister and editor of the Daily Telegraph who covered war zones from Abyssinia to Darfur and late in life became a national treasure. And that's kind of what I mean here. I think that with Joseph, there's perhaps a risk that we've been a bit led astray. Ask a lot of people on the street what Joseph was most famous for, and they'd probably come up with something to do with a multicolored dream coat. But back in 1800 BC, when all this was going on, uh, the Egyptians would have recognized Joseph's contribution to be something much greater than that. Joseph's greatest contribution, as far as they were concerned, was saving the people of Egypt from certain death, from starvation, from the effects of the famine. And so we see that through this sort of work of salvation through Joseph, that God achieved through Joseph, again, a model of Christ-like salvation. You see, Joseph was God's man. He prospered because of God, but he suffered at the hands of those he loved, his brothers, and those he served, Potiphar and Potiphar's wife. He suffered injustice, being sold into slavery, thrown into prison, but he relied on God. He was God's man throughout. God used all these things to good, to achieve great things, and God led Joseph into a position where he was able to save many people. And notice in chapter 41 that it's not just the Egyptians. Um, Verse 54 tells us, the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. So the famine affected all the other lands. Verse 57, and all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe everywhere. You see, this wasn't just God giving Joseph to the Egyptians to save them. This was God giving Joseph to the whole world to save them from this famine. The strapline for Joseph's obituary, had there been such things in those days, would probably have read something like, Godly man who saved many nations. Now, does that sound familiar? Again, we see, I think, that uh, Joseph is a model or a foretaste of God, achieving salvation once and for all through Christ. It's a picture of the good news of the Bible. So what should our response be? Well, I suggest that we should rejoice and celebrate that just as God saved Egypt through Joseph, so God offers us salvation through Christ.
Most of all, I suggest that the story of Joseph uh, reminds us just how great God is, how merciful, how rich his blessings, that he offers us salvation and rescue and a route back to him. So that, if you like, is the second way in which I suggest Joseph is a model of Christ, his sort of calling, his contribution. And thirdly, his covenant fulfillment, taking a step back to view Joseph in the, in the greater picture of the Bible. Covenant fulfillment. Let me explain what I mean. If you've spent any time looking at the Old Testament, you'll see that God is a covenant God. Throughout the Old Testament, God makes promises or covenants to his people. There's promises of salvation, promises of future glory and blessings, and a day when God will dwell with his people forever. Earlier earlier on in Genesis, uh, God makes promises to Abraham. And later on in the Bible, uh, in Exodus, God makes further covenant promises to Moses, then later to David in 2 Samuel, and then later again to the Israelites through the prophets. And so through the Old Testament, we see this ongoing revelation of God's plan and God's purposes as he makes known to his people his plan and his promises, his covenants. So why is all this important? What's this got to do with Joseph? Well, the reason is the story of Joseph comes quite early on in that ongoing sort of covenant revelation, that revelation of God through the Old Testament. God has, by the time we get to Joseph, God's already made his promises to Abraham, but the promises to Moses and David and the prophets are still to come. Just turn back with me, uh, please, to uh, chapter 12 in Genesis. Page 13 in the Green Bibles. This is uh, God calling Abraham and making his promises to Abraham. Verses 2 and 3. God tells Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see, when the Israelites were hearing from, Joseph, from Moses and the other religious leaders about the life of Joseph, and remember that Joseph was a descendant of Abraham, he was of Abraham's line, they would have understood Joseph to be a step in this covenant fulfillment. They'd have understood Joseph to be a step in God making good on his promises. We saw in, uh, back, in verse 40, 40, uh, back in chapter 41, uh, verse 57, that all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. All the world came to Egypt. Compare that to uh, verse 3 in chapter 12 and God's promise to Abraham that through him, all peoples on earth will be blessed. It's worth pointing out that the, the word you used in verses 2 and 3 is actually plural. It's a plural you, so it's, all Abraham, it's Abraham's line and Abraham's people and the people of God, not just to Abraham personally. When the Israelites were hearing from Moses and the other religious leaders about Joseph, then they would have understood this as some sort of covenant fulfillment. They'd have understood God starting to make good on that promise to Abraham that through Abraham's line, all peoples in the world would be blessed. So the Israelites would have been hugely encouraged by this. 
they'd have been hugely encouraged to trust God, to have faith in his promises. And through the hard times that were to come for the Israelites, through slavery and through years in the wilderness, they'd have told each other the stories of Moses to remind themselves of how great and how faithful God is. I don't know about you, but I didn't particularly like school. During the, during the, so the build-up to the long summer holidays, I'd really look forward to the holidays. And every year, we'd go to North Devon, to Woolacombe. And I used to love those holidays. And sort of in the build-up to the summer, my parents would promise me that we would be going to Devon. And because we'd been every year for the last few years, I knew that I could trust in their promise. I knew that they were good to their word. And I knew that if they said that we were going to end up in Woolacombe, we would end up in Woolacombe. And that was great. I could trust them because they'd promised these things before and always kept their word. You see, in much the same way, the story of Joseph would have been an encouragement to the Israelites. They'd have recognized that God does keep his promises. And this would have meant that when God made later promises to David and through the prophets, that again, the Israelites would have been hugely encouraged to trust God. Well, if the Israelites were encouraged by Joseph, how much more should we be encouraged by Christ? Joseph was sort of a model of this covenant fulfillment. But as we know, ultimately, God's covenant promises are fulfilled. They reach their, full, their, their fulfillment through Christ. We've got the New Testament accounts of Christ's life and death and resurrection. And this means that we can firmly believe in the promises of the prophets and the pictures and visions in Revelation that we are destined for eternity with God, that we will be perfected through God, by God through Christ, in, through his spirit, that we will be with God and he will live with us in heaven. You see, the Israelites had Joseph as a foretaste of that covenant fulfillment, but Joseph was just a model of the real thing. The ultimate fulfillment came through Christ and is through Christ. Some of God's promises have already been fulfilled through Christ and some will reach their final fulfillment when Christ comes again. Christ is God's perfect fulfillment of God's holy plan for us. So the message of this? Well, I want you to be encouraged, just as the Israelites would have been encouraged. Through difficult times and through hardship and injustice and all the trials and tribulations that we go to. My prayer for us is, is that we will be encouraged and inspired to trust God and to trust his promises. That when God says that we can look forward to eternity in heaven with him, that that is a promise that we can rely on. So let's pray that uh, by his Holy Spirit, God will strengthen us in faith, that he'll encourage us in our walk with him, and that he will convince us of our faithfulness. And as we said earlier on, that he will work in us by his spirit to shape us into the Christ-like people that God longs for us to be. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for the story of Joseph. We thank you that he was a godly man. And that his characteristics and his attitudes are recorded as a model, as an example to us, Lord. And Lord, we thank you for your son, the perfect fulfillment of all your covenant promises to us. And we pray, Lord, that just as the Israelites were encouraged, so this morning we would be encouraged to have faith in you, to trust in you,
to rely on you. And that then, Lord, we will give glory to you. Give thanks to you. We pray these things through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.